Thank you, song team, for leading us in the singing of God's Word and reminding us of why we are here. It is a joy indeed, is it not, to sing songs of such richness and theology. Sometimes, though, of course, we sing songs, we come to church, we do things like communion, we read the Bible, and they can kind of become rituals, can't they? And we can forget the main point. And today, as you see, our sermon title is called Missing the Point. And so I hope that we find encouragement from it of how we can avoid missing the point. And in many ways, I think it's going to dovetail very well if you were here last week with Pastor Brett's sermon on rigidity and flexibility in the Christian life. I think his focus on a very big, large emphasis that had many applications. And today, this will be a little more pinpointed on the main point of the Christian life. And so with that, I have to say, too, that because I'm preaching today, I get the chance to embarrass people. And so you will hear some stories about Vic Lang and Joe Aho and, uh, and where is Laura Christian? Is Laura here? Laura Christian, I've already checked with these people. They are fine. And you say, well, why are you doing that? Well, hey, I like to embarrass my friends, right? Uh, two, I don't know about you, but when you hear a sermon, sometimes it is nice to hear how people in the church are actually applying it. You know, the scriptures are very hard to apply sometimes and to say that, well, I know that person and I know so-and-so. And nobody is claiming that they are perfect or anything like that. There's still a long way to go. Uh, but it's nice to hear real, tangible examples, people that we can be encouraged by. So with that, let's begin. On this sermon titled, Missing the Point from Revelation 2, 1 through 7. There is a saying in the medical field, the operation was a success, but the patient died. Now, of course, you will never want to hear those words from a doctor, But it's a phrase to serve a point. For all the technical skills that you need to do a surgery, the main point of such work is not the technical skills, but what? Well, to keep the patient alive. And of course, missing the point doesn't just happen in the medical field. A few months ago, I was given a pass to a gym near my church and went to use it. And I went home excited, saying to my wife, this is the one, this is the gym that is going to finally be able to help me to reach my goals. And she says, well, you can join it, but there's, there's one condition. You've got to stop eating all the chips and the popcorn. She said to me, after all, what is the point of doing all those workouts if you're just going to come home and blow it? Now, some of you were thinking in the back of their mind, Jason, well, you should have said that is the point of the workouts. So you can eat that food. Of course, missing the point isn't just in the medical field or in the health field. We can do this in other areas of our life as well. Some of you may remember that in March of this year, we had a men's night. And at this men's night, we focused on leadership in the home, in the church, in the workplace. And we specifically focused on what are the mistakes and regrets that we have as men as we look at our leadership? And what are some of the habits that have been helpful? And one of our panelists, Vic Lang, shared that in his younger years, there were times that he would struggle serving as a construction manager. There were times that he would struggle to be so focused on getting the project done that he wouldn't care how he treated people or whether he got to know people or not. This despite the fact that if you asked Vic at that time, 10, 20, 30 years ago, Vic, as an evangelical, do you believe that the main point of your life is not your work, but to be a testimony of God's grace? He would have said yes. You could say Vic was missing the main point, wasn't he? Not to be outdone, one of our other panelists, Joe Aho, shared that while he was at a previous church in leadership, he had shared that he likes to be right about things. Is Joe the only one who is that? Of course not, right? And that he would often use Scripture as a mean to prove himself right. Forgetting the whole point 
of why God has given us his word to serve as an encouragement to others. But again, to be fair, is Joe the only one that would misuse scripture like that? Of course not. Of course not. And we're going to see that in chilling fashion in our passage today in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now, when we think of the book of Revelation, many of us will think of the really difficult parts uh, that are really hard to understand. We're not going to go there today. We're going to be in part of Revelation that actually I think is pretty easy to understand. Revelation 2 and 3, if you know the book well, is a part where Jesus gives his commentary to seven churches in what would be now modern-day Turkey. He gives some of these churches some commendations, saying, these are the things you're doing well in. But he gives each church some warnings about what will happen if they don't shape up. Now, while these are churches from hundreds of years ago, I think that you will see that their struggles are very relevant for us today in our present times. And again, today's message, I don't think you will find very hard to understand, but it may be hard to apply. And so what are we going to do today? We're going to do a few things. We're going to look at what the Ephesian church did well, and we're going to look at how they missed the point, and then we're going to look at some ways that we can practically respond to the passage that we hear today. So listen in then as I read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, our passage for this morning. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him, him being Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, I know your hard work, and I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. So far, so good. This is a lot of good stuff here. But now listen here. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Dear great God, we thank you so much and we praise you for who you are. You are indeed holy, as we just sang. We thank you that we can come as we are, and even partake in communion today, not because of our great works, but because of your great mercy and grace. We thank you that you have not left us without your word to encourage us, to correct us, to warn us. And we pray that we would encourage each other with what we hear today. Use these words in this message to bring you much glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in our passage today, as you just heard, the Ephesian church was given this verdict. You've been faithful in some things. But you've dropped the ball in a very important way. Now, before we look at how they missed the point and how they dropped the ball, let's look at what they did well. In terms of background, if you see Acts 18, this is a church that was possibly started by Priscilla and Aquila. And Ephesus was also a very highly influential city, very important for the economic area in that time. It was a major port city. And it was also very spiritual. There was sorcery. Uh, There was driving out spirits. Uh, There was a huge temple there uh, dedicated to Artemis. 
And there was also, like many cities, a very large Jewish population that also, again, very spiritual, but did not see Jesus as the Christ. So that gives you a sense of the ministry uh, impact and culture that was there that they had to deal with. And this would have been, in terms of the church being founded in Acts 18, probably around the early 50s. Now, by the time we get to Revelation 2, where Jesus is now then speaking to this church in Ephesus, it is the mid-90s. Not 90s like Michael Jordan or Bill Clinton or Jerry Seinfeld, but the church 90s. I can't be the only one who thinks of those guys in the 90s, right? Am I the only one? Okay, maybe, maybe I am. Anyway, so the 90s in terms of the Bible, not 1990s, but regular 90s, that's when Revelation 2 was taking place. And so in those 40 years, I want you to keep in mind, right, from the early 50s to the mid-90s, in those 40 years, there were some really big names that served as pastors and teachers or people who wrote letters to these churches. There was Paul, there was Peter, there was John, there was Timothy, there was Tychius, and of course we said Priscilla and Aquila earlier. I want you to imagine, to get an idea of how well this church was set up, imagine if there was a church today that had those kinds of guys teaching and shepherding them. It would kind of be like if a church had, say, I don't know, a John MacArthur as one of their pastors. But not just John MacArthur, Alistair Begg. And not just John MacArthur and Alistair Begg, but Jory Trim as well. How about that? And not just these guys, but also John Piper. And not just John Piper, but also this guy here. I mean, look at that right there. This is, what, what do you guys think about this? Is this a pretty good team here? It looks pretty good, right? I mean, I mean this is, this is, they are set up well. They, they can't fail. Now, by the way, I don't know about you, two out of five is not bad. Right? The fact that we have two of the five, that's pretty good. Which two, of course, is the question, right? But can you guys imagine MacArthur being a youth pastor? By the way, I don't, I don't no, no, Laura? You said no, you know MacArthur well. No, okay, well. But anyway, the point is, this is kind of the rock stars that the Ephesian church had written to them over that amount of time. Now, of course, you can be a church or you can be even individuals and you can get tons of good teaching. But the question is, what are you doing with that teaching? Does that mean anything, or does it just go in one year and out the next? Well, let's take a look and let's see how the Ephesians did here. We see here that Jesus says to this church in verse 2 there of Revelation 2, He says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. That is to say, I know that you serve others both practically and spiritually, and you have done that well. And we're going to see later on how they did indeed apply some of that teaching example from those pastors that wrote to them. And then Jesus says, not only do I know about your deeds and hard work, but I also know about your perseverance. Very important, isn't it, in the Christian life? He says, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. And he also commends the church when he says, he knows that they cannot tolerate wicked men. And he says that you also hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, that was a heretical sect that basically taught Christians that, hey, it's okay to pursue idolatry, and to pursue immorality. And he says, I know that you don't tolerate that. Very good. And then last but not least, Jesus recognizes the Ephesians have also tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You have found them false, Jesus says. So he commends this church for their ability to discern false teaching. So as you can see, this church had much going for it. Much of what Jesus commends them for as I mentioned earlier, in fact, is in alignment with what can be found in terms of what's written to them by Paul as well as Peter. On working hard and doing good to others, you don't have to turn there, but in Acts 20, Paul reminds the church of his way of life with them. He says, remember how I've served you night and day with tears. Remember that I have supplied my own needs 
to show you what hard work looks like. And in 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes to Timothy, who is now the pastor of the Ephesian church, he says to them, command those who are rich to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And so this church, again, apparently did very good in applying the example they'd received, as well as the teaching they got uh, from Paul and Timothy. Now, on persecution and remaining steadfast, again in Acts 20, Paul reminds the Ephesian elders of his example of being severely tested by the Jews. He reminds them that he has said to them before that, I know wherever I go, I will probably be put in prison. And hardships are waiting for me. But these are all worth it to spread the gospel. And Peter also writes to numerous churches facing persecution. And the Ephesian church would have been among the many churches to receive his letter. And he says to them, view trials as a blessing. Count it a joy that you suffer for the name of Christ. And so again, you see here the Ephesian church did very well in applying these examples and this teaching that they received. On not tolerating wicked men in 2 Timothy 3, Paul encourages Timothy, and by extension the church, be aware of people who are self-conceited, abusive, not lovers of good, have nothing to do with them. And again, per Jesus' verdict, it appears that they did that very well in him saying you do not tolerate wicked men. And on discerning false teachers, we also see them following through on the examples and teaching given to them. After three years of ministry in Ephesus, Paul says goodbye to the Ephesian elders. And he says to them, keep watch over yourselves and the flock. Because I know that after I leave, savage wolves are going to come. And in fact, some will even be in your own midst, in your own church. And in fact, he has proven right when almost a decade later he writes to Timothy. And he says to you, Timothy... Command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Now to sum up all this, you can see here, this church right here in Ephesus, they took guarding sound doctrines seriously. They persevered amidst hardships for Jesus' name. They did practical good to others and served each other spiritually. They spoke out against cultural wickedness. Of the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you could say the Ephesian church stands out as the best. That's probably why it's first here. There's just one problem, and it's a big one. And it's a big one because it gets at the heart of who God is, and therefore who we are to be. Now before we consider how the Ephesian church missed this point, let's remember who is this giving this commentary here. This is not some irate former church member leaving a terrible review on Google. This isn't some well-known pastor traveling around and giving commentary on a church. This is Jesus himself giving the verdict. Hard to argue with that, isn't it? I mean, imagine if you were a member of that church. You'd be really nervous about him giving that commentary, wouldn't you? And Jesus gives his verdict. He says, yes, you have done many things, as we just saw. But I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. I mean, this sounds so simple or even a little silly. I mean, imagine you're, you're there at the church. You might say, Jesus, what, what are you talking about? We, we got all the hard doctrine, right? We suffered for your namesake. We, we, we called out the cultural ills. Aren't those the heavy hitters of the Christian life? And you're going to nail us on this touchy-feely thing about love? That's what you're doing, Jesus? Yes, that is what Jesus does here, isn't it? But Jesus, we did so much for you. Yeah, but you missed the point. The operation was a success. 
but the patient died. You could say the Ephesian church did church well. They played church well even. But they missed the point. And this is easier to miss the point in life than we think it is. Thinking back to her induction, even though I went to the gym five days a week and say burned 500 calories each time, my wife is right, isn't it? I could go home and take in thousands of calories and I would miss the whole point of exercising, wouldn't I? Vic Lang got the projects done, but by his own admission, in his young years, he missed the point of why he was given a job and a platform as a manager in the first place, which is to care for those under him, to be a testimony of God's grace and what leadership is. Joe Aho won arguments, even using Scripture to win his arguments. But didn't he miss the point of why Scripture and even our mouths were given to us in the first place? So let's take a look then at why this is so serious. Why is Jesus being so serious here when the Ephesian church did so many good things? And we're going to look at six different words. Six different words. I want you guys to notice the six words that are underlined there on the slide. We have against, forsaken, height, fallen, repent, and remove. Now that word against, again, at first glance, you might think, how is it? That Jesus is so against them. That's kind of a strong word there, isn't it? Look at how much they did. But here we have to remember, well, who is God? Who is God? The gospel is indeed about God's justice. It is indeed about his wrath against sinful humanity being satisfied. It is also at core about his love and being willing to sacrifice his son so that there can be a relationship with him. And there are many ways that we are to love the Lord, aren't there? We see throughout Scripture that one trumps them all. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is faith. Is that what it says? The greatest of these is hope. What is the greatest of these? The greatest of these is love. By your selection of elders, people will know you are my disciples. Is that what it says? By your love, people will know that you are my disciples. Let no debt remain outstanding except to call out cultural ills. Is that what it says? No, let no debt remain outstanding except to love. So to forsake love is to forsake God. This is why Jesus said, this I have against you, despite all those other good things that you were doing. Now, a common question here about verse 4 is this. What, what is this first love about? Is Jesus talking about just love for God? Is he talking about love for people? Or is he talking about both? That's a good question. And here we've got to remember that Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament never separates love for God and love for people. It's summed up nicely in Matthew 22. Here Jesus is asked by some teachers of the law, hey, which, which is the greatest of the commandments? Now Jesus knew what they were up to. And he says to them, well, love the Lord your God. This is the greatest commandment. And they thought he was going to stop there. What does he do? He says, oh, but the second is like it. The second is like it. Love your neighbor. And then he says, well, all the law, all the Old Testament, all the New Testament, all the law and teachings hang on these two commandments. John writes to the church in Ephesus in 1 John 4, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. Anyone who does not love his brother does not love God. Whoever loves God must love his brother. So when Jesus says, Ephesian church, you have forsaken your first love, he is saying, yes, you have forsaken love for me. And by extension and implication, you have grown cold 
in your love for others. Now, that word forsaken there is also very strong. Forsaken tells us this was not just a one-time act of their love growing cold. The word means to send away. It means that you abandon someone or something. It means that you allow something to depart. The word forsake, after all, is a verb, isn't it? In other words, there's action here. The abandonment of their first love was not a passive one. It was one that was willful and with repetition. The words height and fallen that we see underlined there, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that this was once a church actually known for love. Tragic as that is. We see that in Ephesians 1.15 when Paul encourages them, For this reason, Ephesian church, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So you say, well, what happened to this church then? They were once known for love. If we do a little history here, we get a sense of when these letters were written and when Revelation was written. As I mentioned before, in the early to mid-50s is when Acts 18 through 20 takes place. The church was founded in the early 50s, and Paul spent a few years there. Now, again, Revelation 2, as mentioned earlier, is kind of in the mid-90s. So you've got about a 40-year gap there. You say, well, what happened in between there? Well, Ephesians and First and Second Timothy and First and Second Peter are all written somewhere in the early to mid-60s. And so when Paul says to them in Ephesians, you are a church known for your love for all the saints, that's probably about 10 years after they became a church. That shouldn't be surprising. How many of us, when we first came to faith, were very zealous, even energetic for evangelism and serving? And then the years go on, and what happens? Again, 40 years here, isn't it? And so by the time then we get to 1 John, well, that's the early 90s, just a few years before Revelation 2. And John is no longer in Jerusalem. Some of you know in the 70s is when Rome took over Jerusalem, so he left, and he went to Ephesus to serve as the pastor of the church there. And so much of 1 John, if you know that book well, is what? It's about concern about connecting sound doctrine with moral purity and love for the Lord and love for each other. Perhaps then it should be no surprise and far-fetched to say that maybe by the early 90s, John recognizes the Ephesians were growing cold in their love for God and for others. Here again, he writes in 1 John 4, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. You notice how much stronger that is than some of the earlier epistles. Again, maybe he sees and recognizes, whoa, the years and the decades have gone by. What's happened to you guys? Let me give you guys a final warning here, as it were. So apparently over time, again, for the rest of the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the church grew gradually cold in their love for the Lord and for each other. Now, I want to be clear, though. This lack of love was not because Paul and Peter and Timothy somehow dropped the ball. It is not because they were only teaching about the importance of sound doctrine and and, and talking about cultural ills and persevering in hardships. No, they taught about love as well. In 1 Timothy 1.3, when he says to Timothy, stay in Ephesus so you tell certain men not to teach false doctrines. Just two verses later, what does he say? He says, the goal of this command, Timothy, is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Or how about in Acts 20 when he says, hey, Ephesian elders, keep watch over yourselves. Watch out for the wolves. And he says a little bit later on, you know how for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. You see the sincerity there. 
Not anger. Not some self-righteousness that sometimes we can fall into when we talk about doctrine. But tears. Peter's exhortations about trials and rejoicing in Christ during hardship, well, that's correct. And he also tells the churches in that very same letter they're facing intense persecution. He says to them, above all, love each other deeply. And if you know Peter's story and his prejudice to Gentiles, and how many Gentiles would have received that letter. And he says in that letter, you were among the elect, you were my brothers. That is a testimony of love right there, isn't it? Paul encourages Timothy, again, and by extension the church, to have nothing to do with people who love themselves and who are immoral. But he says shortly after that, Timothy, you know the example of my way of life. You know my teaching. You know my patience. And yes, you know about my love for you and others. So all along, do you see this from the, from the very beginning in the 50s and the 60s? This church was given not just instruction, but tons of examples to not just simply do church well, but to love as Christ loves. Now, this lack of love is so serious that Jesus says to the Ephesians in verse 5 of Revelation, He says to them, repent. You must repent of this or I will remove your lampstand. In other words, you will no longer be a church. Yeah, you can do all the doctrine and do all the persevering and talking about how bad the culture is. But if you have not loved me or others, you have forgotten the greatest commandment. Now, this is really tragic, and I want to show you why. Look at what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says to them, as I mentioned earlier, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who calls you what? Calls you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The Ephesians were called to declare God's praises. They were called out of darkness into his wonderful light. And then just a few decades after Peter writes that in Revelation, what does he say to the Ephesians? If you do not repent of forsaking your first love, then I will remove your light, your lampstand. You will no longer be a church. In Ephesians 3, Paul prays for this church. My prayer for you is that you would be rooted and established in love so that you together as a church can grasp the love of Christ so that you would be mature in Christ. Again, this is the the early to mid-60s. Shortly after this place became a church. And Paul wants them to continue in love and to be rooted and established in love. And Jesus says in Revelation 2, He says, no. No, you were not rooted and established in love. You have forsaken love. You have forsaken me. Amazing and tragic, isn't it? You can think about all the wonderful pastors and teachers that were teaching this church. And everything good that was going on. For 40 years, they had all that, and they still dropped the ball on the main point. I wonder what it is like for you then, personally. We surely need to think about this as a church, but what about you personally? What do you do with all the good teaching that you receive here or elsewhere? Where does that go? Have you forgotten the main point of why we even get good teaching in the first place? To love the Lord our God and to love neighbor. We don't need to deceive ourselves here at our church to think, well, this could never happen to us. That would be just way too proud, wouldn't it? If the Ephesians had Paul and Timothy and John, 
another shepherd, then what chance do you think we have? Some of you say, well, Jory and, and Dave were on that slide, so we probably have a pretty good chance, but you get the point, don't you? We must be on guard. This lack of love is so serious. It is not just for those who you think who are the touchy-feely and the emotional and the relational people. This isn't just emotions-based. As we saw in verse 5, Jesus says what? He says, repent and do the things you did at first. He doesn't say repent and feel the things you did at first. He says, do the things you did at first. Return to loving me and loving others. Now, the good news is that we do see in verse 7 there of Revelation 2. Jesus says, if you overcome this lack of love, it will give evidence that you are indeed a believer, and so you will enter eternal life, the paradise of God. So that's the good news. He's giving them a chance here. And so taking Jesus' words in verse 5 and 7 seriously then, about this doing and overcoming, we can wonder, how do we work so that our Christian life does not become this cold, mechanical kind of a orthodoxy? You know, we can do very good at playing church, can't we? I remember my wife tells me when she was younger, she was very good at playing uh, wedding day. And I think that, uh, I think, I can't remember if it was her two brothers or something. One was the pastor and one was she was getting married to. Uh, you see, she didn't grow up dreaming she would marry an Asian guy. But here we are. And so she would do a very good job at playing wedding. And if we're not careful, we can do a good job at playing church. We say the right things. We sing the right songs. We, we do the rituals of communion, rightfully so. But what do we do to ensure that this love doesn't grow cold? There's a lot that we can say here, so I'm just going to give us five examples. Don't get overwhelmed. You can just pick one, work on it, and then move to the next. Let's look at these five here. How do we respond to this passage here in Revelation 2? Number one, keep doing what we find in Revelation 2, 2, 3, and 6. In other words, the things that Jesus commends the church for. Keep doing it. We would be mistaken to think that this emphasis on love means that we can be loose with doctrine. We don't want to make that mistake. We might even think, well, what's the point of doing all this hard work of selecting good leaders if even this church with Paul, Timothy, and John couldn't avoid sliding here? But here we've got to remember that Jesus does commend this Ephesian church. He says those are good things. So it doesn't mean we should stop doing them. As a side note, if you are a parent here, or maybe you minister to people, a peer, or what have you, you should take some great encouragement here uh, to keep teaching sound doctrine and to keep standing for Christ. Now, why do I say that? Well, those are good things to do, but you should expect that your words will sometimes be rejected. That's what we see happens to Paul. That's what we see happens to Timothy and and John and Peter and others, certainly Jesus. Expect ministry to your kids or others to be hard. That doesn't mean you don't keep doing those good things. Number two, transact with God's Word. Transact with God's Word. Not just read God's word, but transact with it. You see, the church here in Ephesus, they had no problem, did they, with guarding sound doctrine. The problem there is, have you ever noticed that you can talk theology and doctrine all day long and still not have it transform you? Now, that's not a problem with God's word. That is a problem with us, isn't it? Let me give you an example here. Before I moved to Grand Rapids, I was meeting with this couple, and I think they were in their 70s or so. And I give them credit that they wanted to work on their marriage. I mean, they were at, at a certain age where you might say, well, just throw in the towel. You don't have much longer, just, just, just give it up. But they wanted to meet. No offense to those, we, we have a good amount of people in their 70s, right? We, I'm not going to say who, but anyway. So this, this couple wanted to meet. Now, now, one of the biggest frustrations that the wife had was this. The husband was very regimented in his morning routines, you see. Now, that is not itself bad. 
especially because part of his morning routines was to study Scripture. You say, well, that's good. There's just one problem. Anytime she wanted to talk to him about something, something important maybe, guess how he would respond? He would blow up at her. He would snap at her. Did, did you get that? He's trying to read God's Word. And he snaps at his wife. He was so concerned about the ritual of being in God's Word, he forgot to actually apply God's Word. It would have brought God more honor if he had just put the Bible down and cared for his wife. He upheld one part of the law and he broke the greater law. You said this man was taking God's Word. But I don't believe he was transacting with God's Word. And to be fair, many of us can do the same, can't we? We can traffic in God's Word and not be transformed by it. So we must ask ourselves, what are we doing to respond to it? You see, the Bible is not the newspaper, is it? The Bible is not just some piece of classic literature. Oh, we can respond to it or not. The Bible demands a response. And we must respond and transact so that our love does not grow cold and we don't get puffed up in that knowledge. And so I wonder then, what are your times in the Word like? Are you in it regularly? Uh, Some of you tell me the only time you're in God's Word is when you're in church every other week. And then you say you love the Lord. I want you to imagine, we had a lot of newlyweds here recently. right? And I want you to imagine that Brendan, uh, Brendan, what, what is Brendan's last name? Brendan Jones? What, what is? Brendan Miller. I did their premarital counseling, I, but I, I know his wife's name is McKenna, right? I want you to imagine that Brendan says to McKenna, McKenna, I love you. And then he doesn't see her again for another two weeks when they're back at church. And that goes on regularly. Now, how soon before Steve Tesler gets to get a gun and, and goes to Brendan's house? And what's going to happen there? Is that love? And we must be in God's Word and we must transact with it. We can do that by making a habit and asking ourselves when we read God's Word, what is the original intended application that the author wanted? What did the author want his audience to take away from? And then how do we apply that in our own life? Number three, pursue personal holiness. Pursue personal holiness. Note that I said personal. That is distinct, of course, from this idea of cultural holiness. And some of you know I used to work in Washington, D.C. And a lot of that work there was about cultural holiness, wasn't it? And it's not hard to see, though, how imbalanced concern for culture and others can actually leave us cold towards loving God and other people. You see, talking about the sins of culture can leave us thinking, I'm actually pretty good. The problem is you don't need Christ to look good compared to culture. You're always going to look better. So doing a lot of that, complaining about someone else's sin. By the way, you ever notice we're very good about pointing out the sin in culture of things that we don't struggle with ourselves? Very easy. And very easy to get proud, isn't it? And we can become like the Pharisee. And say, well, thank goodness I'm not like those people. How about instead we be like the tax collector, aware of our own sin and need for Christ? About a year ago in our shepherding group, Laura Christian was sharing how she would sometimes struggle with stewarding her news intake. And she was trying to get better at that. You see, Laura would watch the news and she would see how immoral people were or what, what decisions people were making. And she would struggle with being proud. Now, I don't think Laura's the only one here who would do that, Right. And so Laura was sharing how she had to learn in time that when she hears about the sins of others, whether in the church, whether in the culture or in the news, 
she would ask herself, in what ways is this a mirror to what I struggle with? How does this remind me that I am a sinner in need of grace? How does this help me take the plank out of my own eye so that I can now pray for those in the news? Do you see the difference here? The Pharisee will watch the news and become proud and self-righteous. The tax collector watches the news, sees it as a reminder of what they too are capable of in their mistakes and sin. And they praise God for His grace. And they repent. Now ask yourself, which of those two examples do you think will lead you to a life of cold-heartedness and going through the motions spiritually? And which of those do you think will actually lead you to loving the Lord? Number four, speaking of which, cultivate affections for God. Cultivate affections for God. Now, if you have met with me for marriage counseling for any length of time, you know that one of the biggest practical prescriptions that I give to couples is to become a member of the Frederick Meyer Gardens. Now, a lot of you hear that, and you say, well, you must get some sort of a kickback or discount. I actually don't, but maybe I should. Is Andrew, Andrew Klein, are you here? Not gonna, maybe I shouldn't have done that. If he's not here, that's kind of embarrassing, right? But anyway, um, I don't get a kickback, but I love the place. Now, you say, well, why do you do that? Why, why, do, you, why do you promote this Meyer Grunt so much to married couples? And I recommend the place because I find it a place to be so conducive to having good conversations. I don't know about you, but beautiful settings typically stir beautiful thoughts. I think that's why God made nature. That's why a lot of the psalms and hymns are written out in nature, aren't they? And so I tell husbands and wives, this is easy. This is low-hanging fruit. You can have a low-cost date how many times a week, and I can just about guarantee you walking around those gardens, you'll probably stir some natural affections for each other. Now, what happens after that is up to you, right? Here's the thing. Very few of you actually take me up on this Meyer Gardens idea. And that's to your loss, but that's okay. But getting back to the idea of what we're saying here, just as the Ephesians were told that they had forsaken their first love, meaning that they habitually and willfully abandoned the greatest commandment, our affections take time and effort, don't they? They don't just happen. And so we have to ask ourselves, what about our affections for the Lord? We have to be honest. Bottom line, are certain activities or habits leading me to be wanting holiness more? Or are they leading me away from there? Now, going back to the marriage example, you see, when I take my wife to the Meyer Gardens, and I walk around with her, and I talk with her about life, that tends to stir those affections with each other. And then I notice that when I watch my favorite movies, usually about laser swords and purple aliens, or when I watch grown men in tank tops throwing around a big orange I find that when I do that a lot, the affections for the wife aren't necessarily stirred that much. So you can ask yourself, well, what should you be doing more often than not then? Well, it's the same thing with the Lord, isn't it? Be honest here. Let me give you three questions to think about. How do the people you surround yourself with impact your love for the Lord? How do the people that you surround yourself with impact your love for the Lord? You say, if I don't have any relationships, what do I do? Or talk to me. We have a lot of small groups with men and women in there, uh, in our church, and I can connect you with some to start cultivating some of those relationships. Number two, what do your habits during your commute to work do to stir affections for the Lord? What do your habits when you're commuting to work do to stir affections? Some of you share how you, you listen to podcasts from Christians or you listen to sermons and how that reminds you of your need for grace. And number three, what do your habits during your downtime do to stir affections for God? What do your habits during your downtime 
due to stir affections for the Lord. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop from the 1800s, writes in a book, Thoughts for Young Men, If you show me how a man spends his evenings, I will show you his heart. What is his point there? Our discretionary time reveals who or what we love. So how do your evenings and weekends impact your love for Christ and others? If certain activities are increasing those affections, keep it up. If they're not, though, commit to moving away from them, however long it takes. Number five, and last application. Assess your relationships. Assess your relationships. I don't know about you, but I think that we learn more about someone's doctrine from their relationships. More than any membership document they ever sign. More than any sermon they'll ever preach. More than any Sunday school class they teach. Our relationships are the theater in which our beliefs play themselves out, aren't they? They prove and confirm, do we truly understand this gospel of grace? We all agree forgiveness is important. What happens when it comes to your doorstep? And now you're the one who has to do it. So three questions here as well to assess our relationships. Number one, are your relationships characterized by encouragement of other people? Are your relationships characterized by encouragement? Number two, who in this particular church can say that they've grown in Christ because they know you? Who in this church can say that they've grown in Christ because they know you? And lastly, do you view people as hindrances to your goals? Do you view people as hindrances to your goals? Again, Vic was very honest in that men's night of something that he was struggling with. We need to correctly recognize, don't we, that people don't get in the way of ministry or life. People are the point of our life, aren't they? And ministry. About five years ago now, when Chris Phillips visited our church for the very first time, this was well before we started supporting him and his wife, Lisa, uh, someone asked him, hey, what is it like living in a city of over 40 million people? To give you guys an idea of 40 million, how big that is, the teens are going to New York City in a few weeks, that's 20 million people. So this city that Chris was in was 40 million people. And Chris understood the intent behind the question. And he said, well, of course being stuck in traffic is bad. And it's kind of inconvenient and annoying. But then Chris said something that I'm never going to forget. He said he actually loves being in such a city. And he said, because when you're in such a place, you are never more surrounded by the pinnacle of God's creation than when you were surrounded by people. Is that how you view and treat others, even those who disagree with you? You view people as the pinnacle of God's creation. If so, I think that's a wonderful antidote to love growing cold. Let's conclude here. Last month, I had the joy of seeing my sister Allison graduate with her master's degree in Denver. Now, she's heard the gospel from me many times, and she's been to church with me many times. But Allison has been clear with me a lot that, you know what, I'm not a Christian. And I actually appreciate that honesty. I know, I know what's going on then. And while we sat down for tea, she shared with me the biggest hindrance to her believing in Christ. She said, my biggest hindrance is the hypocrisy of Christians. And I said to my sister, you're right. As Christians, we can be hypocrites. No, I think I was fair in saying, but, but, but isn't it true that all of us, regardless of our beliefs, fall short of our ideals? But Allison was right. 
And that doesn't excuse, certainly, our need to check our hypocrisy as Christians. Because as Christians, we can do great damage to our witness, can't we? When we forget the main point of all this church stuff. To love the Lord our God and love our neighbor. Well, if you fast forward many years from Vic Lang's early days as the manager, he's not just a manager now, but he's the president of his own construction company. And some of Vic's workers, he's told me, struggle with issues that hinder their productivity. Some of them even have had some serious health concerns that impact their output. Now, the younger Vic may have viewed such workers as inconveniences, maybe even liabilities and impediments to getting further contracts. But what about the older Vic? Well, the older one has used these struggles of his employees, he's used them as opportunities to get to know them, to care for them well, to be gracious and to talk about the hope and love that are found in Christ. Vic has had to learn over many regrets and mistakes, as he shared at a men's night, that his love for the Lord is often shown through his love for his employees. You say, well, what about Joaho? How has he been using his tongue and knowledge of God's Word? A few weeks ago, several of us men went to see a movie, and I'm told afterwards one of the men and Joe talked in the parking lot for an hour and a half about life, about family, about Christ. And I'm told that this man walked away saying that was one of the most encouraging conversations I've ever had. You see, Vic and Joe have had some serious operations, haven't they? Not of the physical kind, but of the spiritual kind. To take them from where they once were to being great testimonies of God's grace. And those are just two examples in our church. There's so many more that I can think of. Kurt Ellis was our men's night speaking as well. Talk to him. You'll benefit a lot hearing from what he has had to learn from his mistakes. Make it a point later today or this week. Text someone. Talk to them. Encourage them with how they have been an encouragement to you. I think that is a wonderful way to ensure that we don't grow cold in our love together as a church. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you and we praise you that you have given us your word. And we thank you that now we can not only hear from your word, but partake in this communion. We pray that we would remember the point of this. To love you and to love others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.